So to the audience that is watching us, um, welcome to our respective studies, uh, uh, Rachel Fish and me, uh, uh, the editor of uh, Sapir. And uh, you're here, as am I, because Rachel has really an absolutely spectacular uh, essay in the fifth issue of Sapir, Can the Academy Be Saved from Anti-Zionism? And if you are either in the Academy or have uh, children who are um, in or at the edges of the Academy as students or prospective students, this is an issue that I think concerns us profoundly, particularly when it comes to the question of Israel Zionism and anti-Zionism. Just a quick word about Sapir. Um, uh, we had our uh, initial remit um, in, with uh, our publishers, the Maimonides Fund, was to do a one-year quarterly journal, four issues addressing fundamental uh, topics in Jewish life. And uh, the first year went, I think, exceptionally well. Uh, our issues on social justice, on power, and on continuity and aspiration resonated with, um, I think, a large and an influential segment of the Jewish community. Our subtitle is um, uh, a journal of Jewish conversations, but really what we are are conversations for the sake of a thriving Jewish future. So we, we seek thinkers, uh, who are capable not only of diagnosis, uh, but of prescription. And we ask them to give us um, ideas, to give us, give readers, give philanthropists, give Jewish organizational leaders ideas for how to create that, that thriving future. And we also seek uh, voices from uh, across the uh, ideological and religious spectrum of uh, Jewish life, so long as, as those thinkers are themselves also committed to a thriving Jewish future. So anyway, Rachel, thank you uh, so much for joining us. You and I will speak for about 30, 35 minutes or so, and then we will, uh, as we have before, turn this over to questions from uh, our audience members. So as uh, Rachel and I speak, I ask the audience, um, there's a chat function, there's a Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom windows. And as questions occur to you, um, uh, write them in, in the chat box, and I will try to get to as many of them as possible with a marked preference for uh, statements that end with question marks um, uh, or actually take the form of, of, of genuine questions. So, so thanks again. So Rachel, I just wanna begin uh, with a, a, a theoretical uh, framework because you in your essay um, really spend a lot of time dilating on, uh, on three ways in which um, intellectual life um, on the, at the academy began to change starting in the 1960s and 1970s. And in particular, the way it wound up broad theories like postmodernism or post-colonialism and post-nationalism ended up zooming in uh, very, very quickly on the question of Zionism and the state of Israel. So walk us through a bit of that um, intellectual or ideological history, if you don't mind. 
Sure. So thank you again, Brett, for, for hosting and thank you to Sapir for inviting me to uh, write the essay and contribute. So I think what I want to start off by saying, and I've heard other folks even present with uh, Sapir and say something similar, which is intellectual ideas are super valuable and they need to be part of the toolkit that individuals have as critical thinkers. The challenge is when some intellectual ideas become the primary lens through which all issues are refracted. And that is an example of what I wrote about, specifically in terms of how this impacts the Israel conversation. And these intellectual factors found a real home in the fields of the humanities, which impacts sociology, anthropology, history, all of these kinds of disciplines that many of us are attracted to. And the ideas that some of these intellectual of, you know, theories put forth, again, can be useful as a tool, but not as only understanding through that lens. So let me give you a so, so just, just to be clear, so what you are saying is you are not asking anyone to rule out postmodernism or postcolonialism as um, a way of looking at the world. Your objection is that it has become the only one. Correct. And it's important when you're reading literature, for example, to be able to pick up the tool of postmodernism and apply it to a particular text, but you can also pick up other tools as well. And it should be those tools in conversation that ideally leads to a greater pursuit of trying to understand the truth of that text. That's how I imagine the intellectual sort of ivory towers working and functioning at its best, knowing that Sometimes that may be a bit naive or too um, idealistic, but that's the ideal. Uh, so let me give you an example. During this period of the late 1960s is when you begin to see area studies emerge within universities. Area studies are like gender studies, women's studies, African-American studies, Jewish studies. And these area studies exist so that students can do a deeper dive into a particular subject in a multidisciplinary way. That has a lot of value. Again, the tools that are taught include tools during this period of time that fit the larger cultural and political zeitgeist that exists within the universities and to some degree within the American atmosphere and partly also the impact of the European atmosphere. So for example, when you start to see the emergence of post-colonialist studies. The idea here is that anything that was involved with the colonial, bad. And anything that needs to exist outside of the colonial, good. Similarly, Marxism. The idea here for Marxism is not in the term of economics, but rather in the term of power. And what happens is, is that the idea is those who are weak ought to be strengthened, those who are strong ought to be weakened. So you can start to see where Israel is going to fit into this equation. Can I, can I challenge you for a second? Sure. Um, uh, and maybe this is, this is a, a bit of an overly broad challenge, but you know, this was never a fair fight in the following sense, um, which is that a university that commits itself 
to a kind of value neutral way of thinking about all questions, including fundamental questions like, um, is there such a thing as objective truth? Um, uh, or are truths only a matter of uh, competing narratives? Um, are we uh, as an institution uh, guilty of participating in structures of white power? This kind of radical openness to a set of ideas, including ideas that undermined the very principle of radical openness that made these ideas possible was a recipe for self-destruction. It's a little bit like democracies that invite totalitarian parties to participate in democratic elections in the way that Egypt at one point asked the Muslim Brotherhood to participate or uh, the, uh, 90 years ago, Germany invited the Nazis to participate and using the tools of a value neutral system have effectively destroyed the possibility of value neutrality in, in any kind of academic discourse. Is that a fair objection to what you're saying? I think it is a fair objection. I mean, I would argue that nothing is value neutral, right? We know that, for example, most of these institutions proclaim that they are the marketplace of ideas. It's just that they like certain ideas more than other ideas. I mean, Jonathan Haidt wrote the important essay, you know, what's the telos, the purpose of the university? And he would argue that you have, you know, two positions on that. Those who pursue veritas, emet, truth, and those who pursue social justice. And he would argue they can't actually be pursued simultaneously. One has to ultimately be prioritized over the other. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, I think about Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. It is deeply Jewish, that's its particularism, and it is democratic, that is its universalism. In order for those to coexist, it doesn't mean that they're always equal. That's not the reality. It's that they're in a healthy, tenuous relationship. And one is going to have more priority at a particular moment in time than the other. But it doesn't mean that you completely negate the other. So I think of the university in that space, knowing that it's got to hold a lot of perspectives without championing a singular perspective. Mm -hmm. And part of the challenge that I encountered, both as a student and as an academic, was that there was ultimately a championing that was expected. And if you didn't champion a particular perspective using the, some of these tools, then ultimately you were not understood within the larger framework of the academy. And that then poses a serious challenge to critical thinking. So let me give you an example that has nothing to do with Israel. Okay. okay? Nothing. A leading feminist scholar for whom I had to serve as a teaching assistant as a graduate student was teaching about female genital mutilation. And this individual did not allow for a perspective that suggested that female genital mutilation was ultimately bad, period. Because she said we were not taking into consideration the cultural norms of the society, in particular it was in Africa, mm -hmm. and we were imposing our Western lens and our Western values, and we had no right to critique it. So that to me was a red flag. It became a red flag in the sense that, what do you mean I'm not allowed to critique it? 
the whole purpose of this class is to think critically. And we live in America and we do apply the norms that we hold and value. And therefore we should critique it. And what I quickly realized is that she was using Edward Said's framework of Orientalism to try to impose that Westerners have no right to critique what's happening in a non-Western society. But the majority of undergraduates in that class said, okay, I'm not gonna critique it. I guess female genital mutilation is acceptable and I shouldn't challenge that perspective if I'm not coming from that particular geographical location and that particular culture. That so to me felt odd. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more because you zero in on Orientalism and Edward Said, and I guess you could go back to Franz Fanon um, and an earlier generation of uh, uh, post or anti-colonialist writers uh, and, and, and thinkers. But why was Orientalism such a uh, landmark um, for better or probably worse um, in, in the development? Well, I mean, how did it have such, such an electric effect? It's a great question. I don't know if I actually know the answer of how it was able to animate and capture so many minds. And it becomes for many, to a certain degree, uh, the Bible for engaging and thinking in the fields of literature, anthropology, sociology, even history. And it's not just because of who the author is, Edward Said. It's because it was a way to say, you know, if you came from this colonialist, Western, white, imperialist background, you ultimately can't understand and are doing a disservice in attempting to understand a place that is not um, oriented in the same as you. And that was appealing to many, but as you know, it wasn't just Said. I mean, Franz Fanon is the one who really gets this conversation going in the late 1960s. And once again, this is, um, it's electrifying to many because I think it has to do with wanting to shift the way in which ideas around nationalism have emerged and become the existing world order and framework and to this day are the existing world order and framework. And we see it is the dominant way in which nation states identify and peoples identify from the West. And so it was a challenge directly to that. But I don't know why, maybe you know why. Uh, well, I think it's anti-Semitism, which is <laughs> that, I mean, if you're asking me, uh, uh, I, I don't, this is your interview, not mine, but if you're asking me what I think uh, Said um, and the whole anti-Zionist narrative did was it was a vehicle for making uh, respectable once again, um, ideas that were fundamentally anti-Semitic in their constitution um, and in their uh, uh, intent and the harm they caused, but um, uh, revivifying them in a way that was um, politically current in the 1960s and 1970s. I mean, it was a way of harnessing in particular um, uh, uh, anti-Semitic currents coming out of the Soviet Union um, and coming out of um, Arab nationalisms and giving them uh, a respectable uh, academic uh, academic gloss. I mean, I, that's that's my own view that the 
that with Saeed, the anti-Semitism is, is central. And those who are looking for a new vehicle by which to attack Jews discovered that this was an incredibly convenient way of doing it um, and a way in which it could be done on the political left, since the avenues for doing so on the political right had been foreclosed by you know, the catastrophe of, of, of Nazism and, and, and right-wing uh, 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 right anti-Semitism. There's, there's a paradox that you raise in your piece, which I thought was so interesting, which is that the way in which post-colonialism, which really amounts to a form of nationalism, right? I mean, what emerged from colonialism was nations, uh, or at least nation states, uh, countries that were avowedly nationalistic, um, corresponds with this um, uh, um, anti-nationalism, which also is a function of politics on, on, on this sort of postmodern left. H how do these things coincide? I mean, this is exactly right. Think about what happens in Algeria in the late 1960s, right? It's an, you want to throw the French out. There's this third worldism, this idea that people need to be able to have agency, which is reminiscent of some Zionist ideas, obviously. But it's also at the expense of recognizing that not everything that was in place during a colonialist period was negative. So it's balancing those two once again, but it is this paradox, but it goes back to Marxism because power is part of that equation. Because ultimately it's the weak that need to be triumphant and to be strengthened in that third worldism. And those who are strong have to be weakened. And right. in this case, race also will play into that conversation very often because it will be the supposed perception of whiteness versus the supposed perception of darkness, blackness, whatever it may be. So that, that is the paradox because then you get these nation states that do exist and they identify as in a very clear form of nationalism with a very particular identity as a nation state. So I wanna talk about these frameworks of weakness and strength, right? Um, because that is not just the dominant narrative when it comes to questions about post-colonialism or the Middle East or, or anti-Zionism, but really sort of the social justice narrative uh, uh, entirely. And one of the ways in which many uh, Jewish organizations and students have uh, reacted to that narrative is to essentially try to mold the Jewish narrative to join it, which is to say, hang on a second, when you talk about the weak, look at the Jews, 2000 years of incessant and often genocidal persecution, Israel is a little state surrounded by much more uh, powerful uh, uh, neighbors, um, its victories have always been improbable. Its existence, you know, hangs at, at, at the proverbial knife's edge. In other words, they have tried to participate in this narrative of weakness, right? To say that it concedes the point that there's some virtue attached to being weak. I want to know your reaction to that because my own feeling is that the whole purpose of Zionism was not to be weak, right? Zionism came into existence not to, not to showcase Jewish victimization, it came into existence to end it, right? Uh, and, that, and that the current, particularly um, in America, the 
fetishization of weakness, including by Zionists and pro-Israel people, is a failing strategy. But maybe I'm wrong, so I'd love your reaction. I definitely think that it's a failing strategy. I do not encourage students to participate with that particular framework because we know, and particularly as someone who's mildly obsessed with the study of Zionisms, that it is about that agency and understanding how to have agency in order to have the ability to control one's own destiny. Nothing about that is about being powerlessness, right? It's about holding real power. And the holding of real power, I think for many, I'll say specifically North American Jews is uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable conversation because when you hold power, you make decisions that are very messy. And those messy decisions question how some people think about issues related to morality. And so that then gets into a gray zone for some folks where they don't want that to be part of the conversation and yet you cannot circumvent that conversation. I'll say the following too, when we talk about feminism, no one says that women should be weak, right? Like that's not the idea here, it's a liberation movement. Just like Zionism is a liberation movement for self-determination for the Jews. Nothing about that is about weakness. And we have to figure out within the North American Jewish community why we ultimately struggle with this power conversation and feel very, not just uncomfortable, but shun it. We wanna distance ourselves from it. And ultimately it's not going to help us um, if we try to play a victimhood angle because what happens on campus is that Jews are perceived as part of the white majority. They are not understood as a vulnerable minority. And that is maybe not fair, but it's the reality based upon not understanding ethno-religious uh, identity, meaning Jews as a people and as a religion. And it's a misunderstanding of the diversity that exists within Jewishness in terms of the identity of peoples dark skin, light skin, different nationalities, different ethnicities, et cetera, let alone those who choose to convert and be part of the community. And ultimately what you do is, is when you create this narrative that Jews are um, weak and the rest of the population on campus is looking at you saying, how could you be weak? You are white. And they use language like this, Brett, you actually benefit from white supremacy. I've never met a Jew who benefits from white supremacy, but the language is used for a very particular purpose. And students struggle to navigate those claims, those positions, because they do know that they haven't felt comfortable talking about what does it mean to stand tall, to stand proud as Jews and very clearly identify with a state that holds real power. So let's let's get to the situation for Jewish students on campus today, because on campus after campus, just saw it most recently in a story in the Boston, a really harrowing story in the Boston Globe, Jewish students feel that they are under assault, um, that they need to um, keep their views, um, their Jewish pride, their love of Israel to um, themselves, that it's it's a whispered conversation, if it ever happens, that there's an atmosphere of bullying and moral intimidation on, on, on campuses, and that um, there's not a whole lot of support either um, 
except when it you know rises to to actual sort of you know violent or 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 at least verbally abusive uh, uh, incidents. So what should if if you are advising, let's say um, uh, an eighteen year old Jewish kid going you know um, entering into an elite university today, um, concerned about this very thing, what is your what is your first piece of advice to her? So I would say that it is important to state that not all, every campus is burning. It's a misnomer to think that every single campus, this is the primary issue and animates every single conversation. It isn't. Well, and, Harvard, uh, well, that, and I was just going to say, and at many elite campuses, it is very much a central focus and does dominate much of the discourse. So just note that those two exist. First, I would, ex I would ask that student um, to ensure that they know who they are before they ever walk on that campus. We hear a lot of conversations in the Jewish community about what do we do for kids when they are on campus. And I would argue we have to do a lot more for kids, for students, for families before they ever step foot on that campus quad, way before. And that's a combination of factors and we can discuss them, much of it related to education, much of it related to being able to know who you are and from where you come and understand the value proposition of Judaism and Zionism. And also, of course, to be able to feel a sense of pride and a piece that maybe not specific to Judaism or Jewishness, but absolutely has to be part of the equation for Jewish students is that they have to be able to exemplify moral courage and feel confident walking away from people so that they will know in advance they are going to lose friends and they've got to be comfortable with swimming up, up tide, upstream and against the herd mentality. That is a just necessary foundation before they ever walk on that campus quad. Once they're on that campus quad, there are a variety of things. They need to understand what are the Jewish organizations that exist on campus? Who are the allies? Who are the advocates? Who are the detractors? And yes, there are Jewish detractors on campus. And they need to map that out basically to understand, let alone externally, the non-Jewish space. What are the student groups on Students for Justice in Palestine. What is the Muslim Student Association like? And they're all different and you have to explore them. What's the Arab Student Association like? What's the student government like? What's the student newspaper? Who is it comprised of? What are the profiles of those individuals? We live in a world in which you can actually do some of this homework in advance. Is there a Jewish studies program? Even if there is a Jewish studies program, it doesn't ensure that that doesn't mean that there won't be challenges on that campus. Sometimes all the more so there are challenges on that campus. Is there Israel studies? What does the Middle East studies program look like? Does Arab money fund any of the Middle East studies you know, programs that exist? I mean, this is what has to take place if you actually wanna look at the holistic view of the campus. It can't just be, well, there's a Hillel or there's a Chabad. At this point in time, that is an insufficient amount of work to truly understand what is happening on the college campus. And you some may say, well, that's not fair, but that's like, this is what it is. So we talk about Jewish students, but almost equally um, at risk, besieged, uh, um, isolated, afraid are Jewish faculty, at least Jewish faculty with uh, pro-Israel or at least not militantly anti-Israel uh, views. 
Um, so talk a little bit also about the situation of, of Jewish faculty on some of the campuses that are more problematic than others. I can tell you that when I was a young person right after undergrad and I was working with students at Columbia University to help them address their specific issues on campus, I spoke with probably two dozen faculty members. Now I literally was a kid, Brett, 24 years old. And I would go to these professors, they knew exactly who I was, what I was doing with the students, and they would quietly close their door and they'd whisper, it's really bad here. What are we gonna do? And I would speak in a normal voice and be like, well, let's figure it out. But the reality is what they talked about and it was at Columbia, it was at Harvard, it was at every school you can think of that's had a major issue related to Israel and Zionism, they faced personal and professional repercussions. Real, on the most part, not just perception, meaning they wouldn't get invited to speak at certain conferences. They wouldn't be published by certain academic presses or journals. They wouldn't um, receive the funding they needed in order to do the research in Israel. They wouldn't feel comfortable at the departmental meeting. If they wanted to in introduce a class on Israel, it wouldn't be accepted. These are some of the challenges faculty have faced. And there are some groups that have emerged, Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, Academic Engagement Network, specifically to create an organization for the faculty to be able to engage with one another and navigate the political complexities of these realities. But it hasn't died down. Remember last May, 2021, during Israel-Hamas conflict? University of California Press issues a statement that is very clear how it feels about what's happening between Israel and Hamas. And ultimately, if you are an academic who deeply cares about engaging in serious scholarship about Israel, the California press is not a home for your work. It becomes abundantly clear. When departments issue statements, not individual faculty, we're not talking about them losing their ability to speak, but when departments, ethnic studies, gender studies, African-American studies, issue full-fledged statements about the conflict or about a position on Israel, how does it feel as an undergrad or a graduate student when you have to go see your advisor, let alone as a faculty member in that department who doesn't hold the same position? It creates a very hostile environment and you are basically expected to check your Jewish and Zionist identities at the door in order to be accepted as part of those institutions. Let me ask you something. I mean, one, one potential response to, um, uh, for uh, Jewish professors and particularly Jewish professors who are again, not anti-Israel, which is maybe a majority, um, uh, is, is to cultivate um, Israel studies uh, or Jewish studies as well as Israel studies uh, departments, uh, essentially to seek what amounts to the safety of the, of the uh, intellectual or ideological ghetto as a response to so many other departments moving in, in, in that direction as well. Is that a particularly productive strategy? Are there areas where it works, where it doesn't? If, if you're a philanthropist, imagine that someone on this call is a philanthropist thinking about making a commitment to a major American university to enrich its Israel studies uh, um, department or create one, what's the advice that you're going to offer? Don't just give money without doing your homework. 
You have to be deeply educated about the university and the ecosystem at that particular institution. So let me just give you um, an example of why Israel studies was so important. First, before answering that specifically, Israel studies had no home, Brett, none in American institutions. Brandeis University in its inception was really the institution to create the field of Israel studies with Ben Halpern and individuals later like Yehuda Reinhardt who are going to become sort of the academic forefathers and people like Elon Troen who are going to create Israel studies in a serious meaningful way in America. But the reason is, is that you can't study about Israel in a serious and substantial way in Middle East studies. It's not possible because of the polemics and the politics. Now, one would say, well, what about Jewish studies? Well, here's where I would take a page out of Daryl Horn's book. And I said this for a long time. Jewish studies can be valuable, specifically for studying Yiddish culture, for studying the ancient Near East, Holocaust, sociology of the American Jewish community, American Jewish history. But Israel was not part of that conversation. There was a real uncomfortableness or discomfort with thinking about Israel, Jews, and modern society holding power. So you actually needed to create Israel studies so that you could do the real work that's needed in order to understand Israel both in its uniqueness and like every other nation state that exists and compare and contrast and look at them and interrogate and examine. However, part of it is that what has happened as it is has created these silos where Israel studies is then not integrated significantly throughout the university. And there have been attempts like the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis, which tried to build ways to integrate it more evenly throughout the university ecosystems internationally, not just in America. But it is highly dependent upon who sits in the endowed professorship, highly dependent upon who the donors are, what the larger ecosystem is of the university, who ultimately hires the president and whether or not the president cares about this project. And if you can ensure that it's not built singularly, right? It cannot be around one individual. So we have seen situations in which Jewish donors have given money, hired an academic in the field of Israel studies, often Jewish and or Israeli. And then those individuals are the ones leading the charge for anti-Israel positions on campus. That doesn't help. So that, that, that makes me wonder, and this is a, a subject you raise in your essay, um, whether those of us who care about this can hope, have any hopes for established universities. I mean, there now is more and more talk at multiple levels, not just at the university level, but in, in, uh, at the high school level, even, even, even before then, as ideology infects more areas of educational life, that the only possibility is the creation of an alternative ecosystem. Um, obviously, a prominent example of that is the effort to establish the University of Austin or whatever it's, uh, it's going to be called now. Um, maybe, uh, but then of course, these things face you know, formidable barriers of, of uh, their own. So how valuable is it to start just just saying, look, you know, it, there's no point joining these clubs or trying to reform them. Even when you create an Israel studies program, it gets taken over by 
the last people you want uh, running these things. We just have to go and, and reinvent this particular wheel. So here's where I would say you can't abdicate fully from the space because it's not just about Jewish students. There are plenty, majority are non-Jewish students who still are going to be swimming in the waters that we laid out before and not understand why it's problematic and don't know how to challenge it. And these individuals are going to take leadership positions in all different fields, economics, right? Policy, law, business, education. And to the point that what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus, I've been making that point for 20 years. A lot of Jewish organizational professionals basically patted me on the head and said, don't worry, kids will grow up. It's just a handful of faculty. And the reality was, is that what I was saying and what others were saying, a small group of us was that this is going to seep into mainstream discourse, politics, media, traditional and social, social, social justice movements. You can't just pretend what happens on campus stays on campus. So I do think that there's a real value to create new institutions and to see how well we can do in building these new institutions. And it doesn't mean that we can completely seed the space because those institutions that do exist are still going to exist and be educating a lot of individuals that aren't just Jews. Also, no one's gonna stop in the Jewish world striving to reach Harvard and Columbia and yet like it's not going to happen and Jews aren't going to start homeschooling their kids in universities for university right they're desperate to send them somewhere to some of these brands without understanding at all what comes with that when you send your student when you send your child to one of those institutions. So we need both, I think, sort of approaches in order to be able to navigate this and reclaim what I think is so important, which is this pursuit for Veritas. Last question before I turn it over to our audience questions. What is the possibility for universities in Israel to start um, uh, picking up the slack? You have what used to be the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, now renamed Reichman University, offering courses in English. Uh, in a past issue of Sapir, we had Natan Sharansky and Gil Troy urge uh, what they call a gap year in Israel, but the, re, the kind of reorientation of the major Israeli universities to take in, to have a greater intake from North America, from, from, from the United States. Um, again, uh, imagining that someone on this call is a philanthropist who's, who's and I, I have no idea who's on this call, but I'm just saying this for, for, for purpose, for hypothetical purposes. Uh, would their money be better spent um, telling Hebrew University, for instance, or uh, uh, Haifa or Tel Aviv, uh, um, we want you to bring in a thousand American students uh, a year. Uh, kids should think in the same way that now my, my daughter's generation uh, looks at St. Andrews and uh, Edinburgh and some of the English universities as a viable option uh, outside of the United States. Why shouldn't that also be the case with some of the leading universities in Israel? Yeah, I think it's very possible. I do want to state that you you can still have some of these challenges, right? In Israel, we can't pretend as if Israeli higher ed is completely um, completely going to escape this. They also have some challenges, but yes, it's different. 
And what will matter in order for that to work is these programs are going to have to be in English. There's yeah. no doubt about that because the majority of American Jewish students or North American students are not going to be able to go if it's a Hebrew-based program. So the question will be, can those programs develop strong faculty in English to be able to reach and have the ideas resonate with an American or North American Jewish audience? And then can those programs develop the prestige that is needed and that is required and that we live in this sort of competitive rat race around which university your kid is gonna go to? And can we start to change or shift an understanding of why the value proposition of going to an Israeli institution is actually worth your investment in time and energy? So the answer to your question as my Israeli friends might say is it's depend. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, let, me, let me now turn to some of the questions that are, that are populating uh, uh, quickly populating our Q&A. Um, Mayor Goldstein asks, for those of us teaching on campus, what advice might you give for teaching critical thinking and responding to anti-Zionism today? He adds, students who have already begun to adopt the anti-Zionist framework, how might, how might we open the discourse? So I think we have to be able to label very clearly for our students when anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, because too often, especially on campuses, anti-Zionism is used as a political mask to hide behind and to have politically correct forms of anti-Semitism. So we who are the educators need to be able to peel that back and articulate that very clearly to students. In terms of critical thinking, listen, I think this is what we all need to be doing and encouraging at a much younger age. We have to teach students to be able to think critically and examine and ask who's writing things, for what purpose, per, you know, present multiple perspectives and to be able to then understand those perspectives enough to articulate them and then dissect them. But you gotta create the space to do that and to be able to encourage your students and say, my goal here is not to make you a Zionist. That's not the goal in an academic institution. That is not the goal in the university. It is to be able to open up the discourse and to be able to help students understand where their thinking needs to actually be pushed and challenged. Daniel Hausman wants to know, hasn't Israel also invited a dangerous element into its government by allowing far-right and blatantly anti-democratic MKs, such as the two who were in the last Likud-led coalition, the religious and far-right parties routinely advocate for policies and introduce bills that would profoundly alter Israel's fundamental character. Aren't we inviting destruction as you both discussed? Where is the line between maintaining openness and legitimizing radicalism? I mean, that's a question specific to the way in which Israel functions as a nation state, not so much the university. Uh, we have similar problems here in America with allowing for more radical extreme positions within our political system and those individuals rise to the fore. So in that way, Israel's not unique. And does Israel have a responsibility to uh, be able to navigate that? Yes, but that's not gonna be solved on the college campus. And that's an Israel problem that the government has to solve and leaders in the government have to take responsibility for. David Schiller, has an interesting question. He says, do you think indigenous peoples are quote unquote romanticized and quote unquote sterilized by primary, secondary and higher education, teaching children and students about culture, but not about 
um, Aztec child sacrifice, for example. Conquistadors were bad, offered nothing better to indigenous people. Did colonialism make some contributions? Are we failing to teach life that to teach that life is complicated? Yes, 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 yes. I think this goes back to critical thinking. We do romanticize the supposed native and indigenous, and we um, criminalize and in some ways um, make the West the evildoers. So our goal here is to complicate all of those perspectives because nothing is pure. Nothing is all good, nothing is all bad. And too often what happens in all of these situations and Israel becomes the epitome of this is that Israel is perceived as being created in sin and born in sin. And therefore it is morally impure and you are tainted by it if you associate with it. And so we have to help individuals understand that no nation state is born in immaculate conception, period. And it's complicated and it's not pretty. And there are winners and there are losers. And there are complications within the winning and with the losing. But too often we create these very simplistic black and white binaries instead of actually grappling with that complexity. And I can tell you both as a mother, as an educator, as an academic, children can hold complexity. As young as five years old, children can hold complexity around Israel. Professor Sivan Zakai has done serious research about this. And you see this even when you take your own children to Israel and they can understand why are there different license plates. And then you can have a conversation about why there are different license plates. But we have to not be afraid of engaging in that critical discussion. Yes, um, the uh, I was I was uh, for my own essay for this issue of Sapir. I noted that you know Israel is also one of the children of post-colonialism. It was in fact among the early states to emerge after World War II. It was it was one of the very uh, the very first. And when you actually stop and think about the states that have emerged from colonialism with unsettled and disputed boundaries borders. Um, the, the list is, is, is extraordinarily uh, large. Uh, India has unsettled borders with both Pakistan as well as China, Morocco and Western uh, Sahara, um, the, the question of Northern Cyprus and the Turkish population there. Syria has never recognized a border with uh, Lebanon the status of the South China Sea among multiple disputants is, uh, or claimants is, 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 is disputed. And yet remarkably, remarkably, the only state that is supposed to have uh, a, a uh, unsettled boundary line, as far as most college students are concerned, is, is Israel. And so it, it's interesting to me, and here I'm going on a little rant, but it's interesting to me that the same people who like to talk a game about making things problematic or problematizing issues so often fail to problematize their own issues when, when, when they're inconveniently raised. Let me now ask um, Sylvia Berger, who says she's a college professor, asks, how about the administrator, I'm not, I, that came out wrong, Sylvia Berger, a college professor, um, <laughs> how about the administrators and faculty colleagues of mine that feed students these ideas. So uh, take that whichever way you, you wanna go. Sure, uh, 
I mean, I don't know fully how Sylvia is asking this question, but we know there are some university administrators for sure who perpetuate this idea that Jews are part of the white majority and could never be a vulnerable minority and think that Jewish students just don't have thick enough skin for the political conversations about Israel, when that is not what we are talking about at all. That's not the discourse I'm referencing. And what we find is that we know university administrators, first of all, deans of student life, they're usually the first touch point for undergraduate students. And so should an issue emerge on campus, that's a natural place for students to go in order to navigate the complexity they may be um, hearing, seeing, and or a particular anti-Semitic incident that has occurred. And when you have an individual associated with the university who doesn't take that into consideration or only applies a perspective from a, an American racial lens, then this is not going to work. And so there have to be efforts, and there are some like Hillel's Campus Climate Initiative to educate university administrators to sensitize them about Judaism, the Jewish people and the Jewish state. But ultimately it's gonna take a long time. And I would argue that as important as it is to do all this work with students, and it is important, students are only on campus for four to five years and then they're gone. In order to ultimately change a university, you have to be able to address the issues with faculty and administrators because they set the tone, they determine the climate on campus. Let me uh, turn to a question from Lois, um, uh, Lois Weiner. Um, is there any way to bring back the 40% or so of non-affiliated current college students, I assume she means Jewish students, who have been seduced by the other organizations with which they affiliate, climate concern, social justice, et cetera? Many are turned against Israel, um, against Israel and Zionism by these groups. So, you know, I don't know if the number is 40%, but let's say it is, I have no idea. But what I would say is that work has to be done way before these students walk on campus. And if you read to the end of the essay, what I talk about is the need to build Jewish operating systems. So I liken it to a computer. Every computer has an operating system. And then you have all the, you turn it on and you start to do your work and you open a variety of windows. The way you read those different windows that are open is because the operating system is processing it. What we see too often right now is that for young people, they say, well, right now I have the environmentalist window open, so I'm an environmentalist, then I'm gonna shut it. Now I'm a vegan, I'm gonna shut that window. Now I'm a feminist, now I'm gonna shut that window. Now I'm for gender issues, then I shut that window. And what I'm saying is, is we need to inculcate a Jewish operating system so no matter what window is up, everything they look at is through that understanding of Jewishness in its deepest sense. And that work can't happen the day they walk on college campus. We've done a major, um, major misstep if we think that all of a sudden you can solve for that because you have to start much younger and you have to be able to recognize that one of the most important periods of transformation is during these teen years before they ever get on college campus. Yeah. Which is why, and you raise this in your essay, the question of day schools and what is happening there is so vital. It's like asking non-inoculated people to walk on campus and not 
and not catch um, COVID or a flu or some, some other virus. Saj Freiberg or Freiberg um, has an interesting question, which, which kind of gets at what I was getting at at the very beginning. Um, is the problem a lack of critical thinking or an inability to coherently establish values? Ms. Fish mentioned that Jewish democracy represented two ideals and a kind of healthy tension, but is that really coherent? or simply covering our own confusion about what exactly we are valuing when we value our Jewishness? Couldn't this value be the same as our romantic view of indigenous people? There's a lot in that, so take it any, in any direction you like. Yeah, it's one of these questions I need to look at and reread. Yeah. Uh, listen, I think that, I do need to reread it, Brett, but I, I ultimately think that it's not about romanticizing, we are not in a, um, we're not a specimen on a shelf, right? We need to be able to look at the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it in order to deeply engage with it in a meaningful way. And then you apply whichever tools you want intellectually to examine it, to investigate it. But to your point earlier, if the ultimate investigation is Jews as a collective have no right to self-determination, that ultimately is anti-Semitism in my book. And so you have to be able to label that for what it is. It's not about a discourse about Zionism and the nuances of Zionism. So without, again, reading this in more detail, I honestly don't know um, if there's any way to help students actually dive into all that these conversations require if you think that their first experience with it is going to be when they walk into you know the campus quad the dining hall their work on student government because what's intended in those conversations is ultimately a pitting of who's a good jew and who's a bad jew who's going to like an a not wilfs who's willing to give the pound of flesh and who's not yeah. who's willing to elevate their universalism at the expense of their particularism and I want to be very clear that no other student group is asked to do that. Every other student group elevates their particularism first and foremost. But for Jews, it's upside down. It's hafuch. And so we have to find a way to help our young people to understand that you have an anchor, and that is your particularism, and that's your operating system. And that anchor ought to be able to be both strong and flexible, like the reed. And Critical thinking shouldn't diminish the anchor. It's a fuch, but not like the coffee. Um, <laughs> uh, let's uh, see. Um, okay, Tom Seaton asked, system-wide University of California System Admissions Board recommended that admissions requirements to all UC schools must include liberated ethnic studies, which is the most anti-Semitic kind, that's me, uh, 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 liberated ethnic studies course focusing on indigenous people and anti-colonialism, Israel not explicitly mentioned. While now on hold, there was almost zero pushback from Jewish professors, and it means all Cal high schools may well be equipped to teach ethnic studies courses with this theme. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, fight it. Fight it as hard as you can. And if your Jewish community organizations aren't fighting it, ask them why they're not fighting and hold them accountable because they're doing a disservice for their Jewish leadership and for the Jewish community. It's not an option at all. And what happens in California will happen in Massachusetts, will happen in Texas, 
will happen then in all textbooks. So if we allow this to occur and we sit idly by, because we think this is about progress, we are actually really hurting ourselves. Um, the great Martin Crozel, my friend in Toronto, I'm going to ask his question. Isn't it time to loudly declare that everywhere um, except Israel, anti-colonial ideas have, have tried to be implemented, the human consequences have been disastrous? And then he offers a, a number of examples. Yeah. I mean, look, this is again about having an honest conversation uh simply about all of these issues and recognizing that colonialism doesn't have to be understood only in the narrative of being evil but you have to be able to teach again young people let me let me just say it this way the language itself it's confusing to individuals right there's a sense that colonialism is already equated with bad it's equated with whiteness and it's equated with power and it's equated with malehood. Let me give you an example, Brett. Jeff Jacoby, right? The journalist at the Boston Globe just wrote a very powerful piece about a student who was making the claim at George Washington University, his alma mater, one of my alma maters, ought to have its, the university ought to change its name because George Washington is the most evil individual to ever exist. <laughs> Why? Why? What about all the other things about George Washington other than slavery are we not talking about? This is what happens. Things are understood only in very simplistic terms. And so colonialism gets understood in that way, which is why then you have the romanticization and this um, you know, pushing up of the indigenous and the native. It's all um, doesn't get challenged because if you challenge this, what's gonna happen to a student Ah, you, you must support racism. Whoa, it's the worst sin in the world to support racism. You don't wanna be associated with that. So because we live in a world where we cancel people immediately for any idea and because of social media where we can immediately begin to bully them in the most uncivil way, what do most students do? They stop talking. On they that note. <laughs> On that note, Rachel, this is such a rich and fruitful conversation. And um, just listening to you gives me ideas for the uh, essay I'm uh, writing for our next issue of Sapir, which is going to be on the subject of um, education, um, uh, a particularly important one, I think, to uh, this audience. I want to apologize to uh, the many people whose questions I wasn't able to ask. I suspect they would gladly uh, wait longer, but we, we want to honor and respect people's uh, times in the, in the beginning of, of, of a week. So to those of you who, whose questions I didn't ask, please accept my, my apologies. Rachel, I really want to thank you for not just this conversation, but really a luminous essay in uh, Sapir. And I want to thank our audience for just being engaged with this, um, this, this enterprise of ours which uh, really aims to make um, uh, uh, possible uh, the kinds of conversations we need to um, have um, a better, more secure, a thriving Jewish future. So um, please remain uh, engaged in these talks. We have many more to come. 
Um, and uh, Rachel, I, I look forward to the next piece I'm going to commission from you sometime, somewhere down the road, but, but hopefully in the not too distant future. Thanks again for, for joining us and have a great day. Thank you.